Hi everyone, and welcome to Allocator's Edge, a TVP mini-series where we will be engaging in conversations with the world's top capital allocators. In this ever-changing landscape of heightened inflation and interest rates, we aim to unravel how and why capital allocators make the decisions that they do. Join us as we explore the nuances between healthcare foundations, examining the impact of inflation on endowments, and the strategic choices between share buybacks and dividends for pension schemes. In this mini-series, we aim to shed light on the inner workings of capital allocation, helping both investment teams and listeners gain a better understanding of mandates, global interplay, and the intricate dance between strategy and reality. New episodes of Allocator's Edge will be released on alternating Thursdays, just as we've done with mini-series in the past. This is marketing material for financial professionals and professional clients only. The material is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice or investment recommendations. Reliance should not be placed on any views or information in the material when taking individual investment and or strategic decisions. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. It may not be repeated. Diversification cannot ensure profits or protect against loss of principal. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Investing in emerging markets and securities with limited liquidity can expose investors to greater risk. Private assets investments are only available to qualified investors who are sophisticated enough to understand the risk associated with these investments. This material may contain forward-looking information such as forecasts or projections. Please note that any such information is not a guarantee of any future performance and there is no assurance that any forecast or projection will be realized. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individual to whom they are attributed and may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in any other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to regions, countries, sectors, stocks, or securities is for illustration purpose only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments or adopt a specific investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Allocator's Edge. In this episode, we are joined by previous TVP guest, Dan McCulkis. This time, he is joining us as the CIO of the People's Pension Trust. Last time, he appeared as a consultant at LCP. But in his new role, Dan leads the investment team, which oversees the investments at the members of the People's Pension, with an AUM currently sitting at £21 billion. In this episode, Juan and Andy Williams will discuss Dan's transition from a consultant at LCP to the CIO of People's Pension Trust, the main challenges faced by the UK pension industry today, differences between theory and reality when it comes to capital allocation, how his decision-making framework changed and how he's thinking about a world with higher inflation and higher interest rates, and finally, how Dan is thinking about risk and the probabilistic nature of investing. Enjoy. Dan Mikolskis, welcome back to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Really well, thanks, Juan. Uh, Andrew, great to be back. And I was just saying, this is by far and away the most professional podcast setup I've ever experienced. So it's, it's a real privilege to be here. Thanks oh, for having flattered. me. Flattered. That's, that's really flattering coming from a podcaster yourself. For those that haven't listened to our previous episodes, and we strongly recommend that they do, could you please do a little bit of a recap about your journey? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm currently the chief investment officer at People's Partnership, where I've been for about four months now. So I'm relatively pretty new in that role. Still, um, you know, obviously still super excited about it and keen to talk about that. But but most of my career, I've been an investment consultant, where you know, it was a real privilege where I was working with asset owners, helping them think about their investing strategy, picking managers, do all that that that, that good kind of stuff. And I've had the, the good fortune to work for three different consulting firms over that period of time. So experienced, I think, various different cultures and sort of different types of firms 
um, in, in there. I also had a, a short part of my career where I moved to Sydney and was more involved directly in kind of banking and asset management for a period of sort of about three, four years. Um, you know, some some reason got tired of the Sydney weather and decided <laughs> to move back and and uh, sort of came back into consulting. But yeah, most of my career has been been in consulting. It's been ad- advising other, other other people. But um, I'm, I'm delighted to have made that step to be to be working on the asset owner side now. Could you maybe tell a little bit the story how about how that transition happened? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it sort of comes back to that point. You know, I, for, for better or worse, I sort of have this idea that I, I do think asset owners are special. I think they're institutions that sort of need to exist and, and deserve to exist in, in, in the world and, and are required. And, you know, in the UK, unfortunately, that there are less of them, there tend to be less of them than they used to be. That's kind of the way things have gone. Yeah, I feel incredibly fortunate to have worked with a good number of asset owners and some quite large ones as, as an advisor. But but clearly there's a difference between advising people and actually being in the seat and 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 putting some of that into practice and, and actually doing things yourself. So, you know, I had a real desire to to sort of take my career that way and I'm delighted that the opportunity sort of uh, sort of sort of came up to do that. For those that don't know what the people's partnership is, could you please give us a little bit of a summary description of what the company is about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the People's Partnership is the provider of the People's Pension. Uh, people's Pension is, is now one of the largest pension funds in the UK. It's a defined contribution DC master trust is, is technically what it is, but we're a 24 billion pound pension fund, makes us one of the largest. We, we also grow really fast. The, the sort of short-term history of that was that as you'll be aware, auto-enrollment came in in 2012. Most employers now have to enroll their staff into a pension scheme. And for 100,000 employers around the country, they use us to, to do that. So we have about 6 million underlying sort of customers, underlying people who've saved into a pension through the people's pension and, and continue to do so. So we, we, we grow somewhere between three and four billion pounds per annum every year. Um, so you know, growing pretty fast. One of the largest pension funds, but, but certainly one of the largest sort of defined contribution um, pension funds as well. Interesting. I want to dive, dive straight, in, straight into the, the deep end, talk about some of the challenges you know, that are faced by the pension industry in the UK today. It feels like you can't, you know, you miss a day in the FT and you've missed a story on the challenges facing the pension industry, the capital markets task force. There's so much there to talk about. Perhaps we could just start with Broad over, your broad overview of the landscape today. What are the constraints facing kind of asset allocators, and then perhaps we can get you know get into the weeds a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think re- reflecting on sort of my, my career and been in the UK pension space for most of that time, what, one of the features of the UK pension space that I think holds it back a little bit is that it is just very fragmented in terms of the underlying pension schemes. There are just lots of them and they are on average quite small. Yeah. Certainly if you compare to somewhere like Australia, which yeah, isn't, I'm not saying it's perfect or anything, but I think yeah. is a decent model of where you know, things might go in the future. And, and uh, you know, as properly scaled up asset owner, I think you probably are talking sort of certainly 50 billion plus, 100 billion pound plus. Is is globally the, the right sort of scale to be an asset owner, and in the UK we've had very few schemes that have ever been at that scale. Yeah. We, we will be hopefully, and maybe maybe this side of the decade. But we have very few scaled up asset owners, and I think that has a lot of unfortunate influences down the chain. I think it means that you get you know subscale schemes who then become very dependent on outside um, sort of advisors and other 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 people, and have to sort of try and rent scale from the asset management industry, and aren't always able to dictate sort of the right terms in order to be able to do that. And it, it does sort of create create a lot of issues. Um, and that's changing a little bit with there's now a decent amount of scale in some of the, the, the sort of DC master trusts. I'm, I'm very um, aware, by the way, it sounds like I'm absolutely talking my own book <laughs> coming from one of the larger master trusts and banging on about scale, right? So there is a little bit of, well, he would say that to it. I mean, I, I sort of take that on the chin, I guess. But but I, I do think scale is an issue. And, and so th- that sort of 
and that's not a controversial statement, I don't think, by the way, people yeah. recognize that. But I, I do think that one of the, it should be a high priority to, to try and address that before trying to address other things, which I think naturally would come with scale, right? Whereas there tends to be sometimes a tendency to try and address things in a kind of shortcut way because we have a fragmented system, we're simply trying to get a scaled up system would actually, it's a bit underappreciated how many things that would address along the way. I think, yeah, it, it's a whole other podcast, right? But yeah. it is it is just for an interesting time in the, how the UK is looking at, as you say, Australia, looking at Canada, looking at these other areas. And, you know, you can go onto an Aussie superannuation, you can see like the 10-year performance on the website. What's right, what's wrong is just something that, it's a huge headache for everyone, but it's, if we get it right, it's fantastic. But as I said, podcast for another day, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, bringing this back to you, more specifically an asset allocation. Yeah. What are your sort of overarching beliefs when it comes to asset allocation? Do you have any sort of rules of thumb? Is there any sort of, or even rules of thumb aren't great for us because we talk about process a lot, or even just points of process that you aim to, to always stick to and, and kind of instill in your team? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I think investment beliefs are really, really important, actually. And maybe my first belief is that investment beliefs are underappreciated, right? <laughs> but I, and I've said before, and I think I might have said it when we spoke last time, that, that the test of a good investment belief is if someone could equally reasonably take the other side of that same belief, could, and that could also be a credible belief, right? That, that I think, is a top-class investment belief, right? As in the opposite of it could also be very, very viable. Most investment beliefs you see around are not that. They're statements of the obvious. Yeah. But there's also a third category in the middle, which is kind of things that most people might agree are true, but you just want to prioritize much more highly than other people, right? So I think I have beliefs that fit into all three of those categories. That first test is quite a high bar for a belief. But if, I, if we start with the kind of lowest level beliefs, the kind of beliefs that everyone says all the time, and sometimes you do have to say them. So yes, diversification. Yes, I believe that risk and return are related. Yes, I believe that past performance is not a guide to the future. You know, those are the kind of obvious truisms. But I do think you kind of need to get beyond those. Then there's that category of things that other people probably would say are important, but I do think deserve more importance. And, and a lot of that is around things like your, your investing environment, the environment you put around yourself, you choose to put around yourself and your team really matters. So things like you know, how, you, how often you're looking at performance, what performance you're looking at, how often you're talking about investment, how you, how you think about the investment world, how you slice up your asset classes. A lot of that people sort of take for granted, but I think you do need to be quite intentional and deliberate in how you do that and how you actually architect your investment process, I think is a really big, um, a really big thing. Again, I think we mentioned it last time, but little things like what's on the first page of the performance report. Is it some mumble about what the Fed did last month and the three month numbers, or is it a reminder of what the long-term beliefs are and what your 10 year numbers are kind of thing? Something as simple as that, whether we're talking asset manager or asset owner kind of it doesn't matter. Stuff like that, I think, actually is is really, really important and is something that's sort of worth, worth focusing on. But if we sort of get to maybe some of the highest quality types of beliefs, right, there's sort of things that some people might take the other end of or my sort of more controversial kind of views, because I think that's where it gets a bit more interesting. I, one of them, I think, I'd say any single prediction is quite unlikely to be correct, right? And so you should tailor your asset allocation accordingly, i.e. your outcomes shouldn't turn on one prediction um, sort of being right. I think that's, that's sort of quite an important thing. Um, and you know, they're sort of related to that. I think the, the, the market cap weighted index embeds a lot of useful info into it. You know, I think it is a little bit underappreciated how well the market does at wrestling with the big issues of the day and coming up with a judgment on how to allocate capital. I'm not saying it's perfect and that everyone should invest passively, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the market, you probably can beat the market index in certain ways, sure. But 
I, I think you need to have some respect for that market cap starting point, and it actually gets you quite far in, in the investment process using that as a kind of a, a sort of starting point. And the reason I think that's a good belief is because I, I know full well there are people who say the first thing you should do is throw the market index out and start from another thing. So at least that passes my test of a good belief because you could get someone equally reasonable perhaps who who starts from the other end. So I think, I think there you're sort of getting at something useful. I'm not sure equally reasonable, but you've got <laughs> someone opposite you who probably does start, start at the other end there. No, I, I wanted to follow up on that and get a little bit of your sense and views on the whole debate about between active and passive. Because it seems that to a larger extent, passive is kind of winning a little bit the, the battle between both camps, with a lot of people for very good reasons going passive, but also putting a lot of pressure on active. And, and we, of course, believe that active has a very important role to play. So how do you see that dynamic playing out going forward? Yeah, I mean, I I don't have, I've never really tried to cast it as active versus passive. I think that's a, that's a little bit, passe, I think we're sort of past casting it in that way. I think a lot of asset owners would use both probably, right? So so trying to argue that one or the other is sort of better. Yeah, I think we were probably in a place where active management in general had gone a bit far and it, there needed to be a bit of a rebalancing. Can I say what the right balance is? Like, obviously not, right? So th that's, the, that's the thing. I mean, I think there's some really interesting questions to be asked about what the, the move to passive sort of means for, you know, for markets and for allocation and for efficiency and those sort of questions. But I, I guess from that belief, you can sort of infer that I, you know, I'm broadly sort of passive-ish is kind of sort of where I'd, I'd start. But as I say, I, I'm not an efficient markets kind of hardcore efficient markets person that thinks you can't sort of possibly beat it. But it, it gives you a very good starting point. And another thing I think is unappreciated, obviously, costs in investment do really yeah. matter. You can access um, market cap super cheaply. Mm. So it gives a framework for active management to operate in, I think, which is that if you do want to do active management, it better be very high active share. Yeah. Yeah, the worst mm. thing you want is a benchmark hugger charging mm. active fees, mm. right? We can all agree on that. So that's the bit that's definitely gone. Then the question is, right, how much of your risk budget or fee budget do we want to place on active? And then wh where do we actually want to use that active management? And what's the right cost to pay for proper active management? I think are then really, are, they, they are the better questions rather mm. than getting stuck in this mindset of, oh, I'm going to argue that passive mm. is always better than active. It's like, sure, passive is great. Active is also great. But if you're going to do active, it better be full on, um, you know, high active share um, in a particular area and, you know, be really focused and concentrated on extracting the most value you can from those those managers. How does one think about the specific challenge in the context of fee budgets and not only passive and active equities and fixed income, but my understanding is, and you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, there is a regulatory push to try to get more pension funds to invest into alternatives, which by definition will have a different fee structure. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, we, as you probably be aware, in the, in the UK, there's a regulatory cap on the fees that we can charge to our customers in the default. We actually sort of self-cap at a lower level than that. The idea of a fee cap is sort of much maligned, I guess, but I quite like it, actually. I, I'm a sort of a advocate of it. I think it instills the right discipline in the conversations. You know, I do think there can be a tendency in the industry to um, sort of wave your hands, if you like, at fees and make assumptions like, oh, the outperformance will probably roughly equal the fees over the long term, right? A very common assumption that consultants use. And, and then the, unfortunately, the logical consequence of that is you, you end up paying any fee you like and you're not sensitive to fees. So I think having a discipline on fees is, is, is really important. So having a cost cap um, is, is, is essential. And then you can th have that budgeting mindset to think, right, how much headroom do I have 
can I do fee arrangements where I really benefit from the scale? So that if I'm getting a lot of assets with a manager, you want those fees to be really tailing off. How much headroom does that give me to sort of do other stuff? And it, it comes back to my point about scale. You know, I do think that at, a, at the right scale, you can do pretty much all, all the investment strategies you might want to do, you know, active, passive, illiquid, what have you. I do think you can do all of that in a pretty fee constrained way at the right scale. What you can't do is do all that in a fee constrained way subscale, which I worry <laughs> is what is where things are trying to be pushed in the UK at the moment. Mm. And that's where you, you then end up trying to come up with the wrong answer, which is let's change the cost cap. Mm. Whereas as I say, I, th I think if you're a properly scaled up asset owner, you can get the right terms with your fund managers and the right kind of sharing of scale and those sort of things that would enable you to do pretty much all you want, maybe most of it or all of it. Um, so yeah, I, I certainly come back to saying that, that fee caps are really important because being on the asset owner side, it makes you think in the right way in terms of how you're spending that, that sort of budget. But it's not necessarily super negative for active managers is what I'm saying, because if the owners are scaled up, mm. at some point there'll be some budget for that potentially. How does alternatives entering the picture changes that landscape? Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think, it, the, again, the, the, the fee cap thing focuses you on the right question without, right? Which is what are you really getting for your fees? And uh, yeah, are, are you are you experiencing a fair share of economics with the managers? Um, what, yeah, one of the big issues in, in private markets and alternatives, I think, is that you know, a agency issues are really real, and you can easily effectively give away all your returns to the manager if you're not careful. That does mm. happen. And so you've got to make sure that doesn't happen. In liquid markets, that's much less likely to happen. In passive, it, it pretty much never happens. Even in active liquid markets, that's where, with where fees are. You know, it's, it, you can be fairly confident you're getting a good deal, whereas it outs can't. But again, I think it comes from starting from the right place, which is, can we set a hurdle rate for what we actually need from this asset class? And can we figure out the right sharing of economics? And can we find a way of, of including it sort of in our fee budget? That's the sort of way we're thinking about allocating to it, rather than just kind of starting from the position of saying it merits a place of its own accord, right? It's kind of saying, what is it actually bringing? Is it bringing greater returns than, than public markets, for example, is one, I think, key question you're thinking about when you allocate that. Of course, you, you have only been, I think that you mentioned, four months yeah, in yeah, your right. job, yeah. and yeah. the next question might feel a little bit unfair. <laughs> so we apologize in advance, and we actually hope that we will have you back at some point <laughs> in the future. And we sure, can. But how do you think, how different is the theory versus the reality. When you were in an advisory role, giving advice to CIOs on how they needed to proceed and read, read the landscape versus being on the, on the share. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, what's the, what's the quote? In, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is, right? I mean, and I think, I think that's right. And I, I get one, one observation is that in practice, so many things are just not knowable that you would like to know, right? I mean, in theory, how do you do asset allocation? Well, you have a bunch of expected returns, you have a bunch of risk measures, whatever measure you like, a bunch of correlations, you chuck it into a covariance matrix, you get a nice efficient frontier and that tells you with proportions you should hold different asset classes in. But in reality, you don't know any of those returns to a high degree of confidence. You don't know the correlations, you don't know the risk numbers. You don't even necessarily know what risk measure you should care about, right? I don't know that we should really care about volatility in our in our um, funds, to be honest with you, um, as opposed to other other risk measures. Um, yeah, those are often single period. We care about longer term. So, it, it, and I think those issues do undercut those classic kind of asset allocation models to quite a significant degree. And one thing I've noticed is being on sort of the other side, as it were. Um, 
when I was at consulting firms, we put a lot of time and effort into coming up with those assumptions and those models. And I think they were good models and good assumptions, right? <laughs> I, I think in the main, they were, they were certainly arrived at, um, you know, honestly and reasonably. But you get very attached to your view of the world, you know, your set of return assumptions, your model. And you can almost get, get too carried away, but that's the way to look at the world. Whereas now, you know, we take kind of a panel approach. So we ask for expected returns from a range of managers and consultants and stuff which is a really interesting exercise because there's just a really big range. Um, and it's all in the detail. Like some managers might ascribe a higher return to European equities than US. Some it's the other way around. Some think Japan is higher, some Asia. So when you start getting to capital allocation, it's kind of once you take into account that range, it's just much fuzzier than you think when you're just looking at it from one perspective where you think you know those what those expected returns are. Once you realize there's a huge range around it, around those return numbers, I think you have a little bit more humility and you get a little bit less focused on those kind of point optimizations. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to my favorite point here is that actually market cap is quite handy then because almost binning the asset allocation optimization and just going back to something like market cap as a starting point is not the worst answer in practice, I think. Whereas in theory, I think was it Warren Buffett who said what works in practice, but not in theory, I think yeah, passive is potentially something you could argue falls into that camp. But I think the market cap gives you a really good allocation starting point in practice, mm. whereas theory would dictate that you do a mean variance optimization, you have an efficient frontier and mm. yeah, all, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that, that's a few thoughts on, on, on theory versus practice. You made a transition to your new role at a point in time where a lot of things are happening in the market. There are always a lot of things happening in the market, but in this particular case, you are facing an environment where there seems to be higher inflation than before, which is driving higher interest rates. Yep. That, that's an environment that many people have not seen maybe for the last 25 years, a whole generation. Many people have never lived through it. How does that impact the way that you are looking at the landscape? Yeah, I mean, this is a great point, right? Because I think a lot of it comes to recency bias and trying to get away from that. You know, we had a, we had a sort of a decade there of a very particular market environment. And that's kind of, it's kind of always the case. You have a market environment, it gets pretty stable for a while. We had low stable interest rates, low inflation. And very quickly, we got shaken out of that environment. And I, and I, I think a few points there. I, I realized how much stable features of an environment get built into the way people think and operate and even get built into the models, get built into the metrics you look at, into the way people allocate and operate. And, you know, a once an environment persists for a decade, that's a lot of people's entire careers, right? So you can see why that gets built in there. And yeah, the LDI crisis, I think, was one example of that, that that, that environment had got very deeply built into the models that were being used to to create those strategies and, and the, the changing environment sort of sort of really challenge that. So, so I, I think it's really healthy to challenge recency bias. Um, you know, I think one of my other beliefs is that this time it's always different, really, a little bit different. I don't think there are that many immutable iron laws in investing you can always depend on, unfortunately. Um, and, and so, you, so you, you do have to try and get away from that and think about, you know, not depending too much on those sort of stable features of an environment. But to, to make the conversation a bit more concrete, I think some of the really important things for an allocator are What's the long run level of interest rates likely to be in big economies? What's the long run level of inflation and volatility of it likely mm -hmm. to be? Th those are, in my view, some of the most important questions that 
we can wrestle with as an allocator. You spend a lot of time debating, is there going to be a recession next quarter or mm. something? I think that those long runs, I mean, those are really hard questions, right? I'm not saying I can tell you the answer. But I think even at least if you can grapple with it a little bit, because of the long run rate of interest obviously goes to the long run returns on your fixed income portfolio. Mm. And long run rate of inflation affects the real returns you can generate. And that's what we're interested in. So I, I, we've been in an environment where those have changed a lot. and But I think it's it's reinforced the need to address recency bias and kind of try and grapple with, with, the, with the right questions and you know, leave some of those you know, nice stable features that we enjoyed for 10 years, try and leave that behind as much as possible and not sort of build it into thinking. How, how do you, how does people's partnership think about the sort of performance that you need to deliver? Is it measured in absolute terms? Is it relative to a benchmark? Do you have a set hurdle rate that you need to achieve over time? How, how does that work? Yes, it's a great question. So it's, it's, it's real returns, basically. And, and again, just to sort of double back on, on some of our, our structural um, makeup, we... we we mainly focus on our default strategy, which is where the vast, vast majority of our underlying members ch channel their assets into our defaults. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how should we allocate that default. We also have various other options that folks can choose to allocate to if, if, if they want to. Relatively few people choose to do that. So we're very focused on that default and what that is doing. The performance target for that is currently CPI plus 2.5% per annum. And we also have a pre-retirement fund as well, which is for those folks sort of 10 years, in the last 10 years before retirement, target for that is more like CPI plus half a percent. Um, th those targets don't change very often, but have changed a little bit. Um, it's, it's difficult, I think, because as a you know, sort of growthy investor, inflation plus two and a half ought to be pretty doable. Mm. But there have been environments recently where that's looked very, very hard. Mm. Um, and, and, and recently it's sort of, it's, it's sort of got a little bit, um, a little bit better. So, so we are thinking in real terms. Um, but th th that prompts some really interesting questions straight off the bat because one question is, are, are long-run equity returns, do they, do they peg themselves to long-run risk-free rates plus a premium, mm. which is what some people believe. It's a very mm. reasonable way of making up. Other folks will say, no, 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 it's all about inflation. You look at long-run dividend growth, long-run um, real dividends, long-run real GDP, and you build up a real return number for mm. equities, which then sort of floats with the inflation rate. Now, the difference between those two didn't matter for a long time. And now it like really matters because <laughs> yeah. they're actually sometimes they go in opposite directions. Because yeah. if you believe they peg to long-run risk-free rates, then they suddenly went up by lows over the mm. last year. If you believe they pegged to long-run inflation, then you, know, you, you get different answers. So it's, it's really fundamental things like that that are the different questions to answer, but I think they're some of the things we sort of have to wrestle with. Um, but anyway, to come back to your question, yeah, we're, we're fundamentally, it's, it's, um, it's a CPI plus kind of real return mandate that we have. And in fulfilling that, we're trying to sort of at the same time assess what is reasonable that we can deliver from a diversified portfolio, our, our default is um, 80-20, 80% growthy assets, 50%, uh, sorry, 80% <laughs> growthy assets, 20% <laughs> fixed income assets. Um, and yeah, we think that that mix is sort of a, a pretty decent mix people to hold for that, that rate. And, um, is, is there, is there a, a bucket or a place for real estate hard, hard assets? Or is this just fixed income plus equities? And that, the way that you're defining growth is, is through equities? Yeah, I mean, we, we yeah, structurally how we look at it, we have a sort of growth pool and a, and a fixed income pool. I think if you were looking at real assets, you'd probably put them in the, in the growth pool. Mm. But there's a, a sort of a deeper question there, perhaps, which is the, 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 the attractiveness of sort of return streams that are explicitly linked to inflation. 
is, is a really interesting question. Clearly, if you've got an inflation, if we've got an inflation plus two and a half percent target, and there's an asset that is going to actually do inflation plus two and a half percent, then that ought to be a really attractive asset for us. Um, and, and I think that that thinking has changed a little bit with inflation being high because when inflation was low and stable, it kind of didn't matter. It was like, well, call it call it inflation plus two and a half, call it mm. cash plus four. Mm. Those two things could sort of be used interchangeably. Whereas when that relationship gets broken, you suddenly do have to think about it a little bit more. Mm. Even things like index linked gilts, mm. obviously real returns on those looked really unattractive for a long time, actually changing a little bit. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a thought experiment, a thought experiment for us. We might challenge ourselves to say, well, hey, what if real returns on index linked gilts got to mm. two and a half? What, what should that imply for how we're doing our asset allocation? So yeah, I, I think that is another example of something that's sort of changed in, in, in attractiveness. And yeah, in, in theory, we should be attracted to sort of inflation-linked return streams if we can access them in a way that gives that, that offers good value for money. At the same time, there's pretty good long-run evidence that stock markets are going to do, you know, inflation plus three, four percent mm-hmm. per annum over the long term. That's not a given, obviously, but it is a pretty fair expectation given what sort of we've had over the last hundred years. Interesting. Just to dig into, into risk a little bit more. Mm. So the outcomes... I'll start that again. So in investing, we're thinking about outcomes in a probabilistic way. Yeah, we we tend to be, or people should be, and yet there is sometimes a disconnect between there between the probability of outcomes and definite targets that you're going for. So I just wanted to dig in a little bit into how you think about risks broadly, but also how you integrate probabilistic thinking into into your framework. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great point. I think probabilistic thinking and confidence is at, is at the heart of it and ought yeah. to be given more prominence than it often is. And it can be very, very tempting. I'm, I'm actuary sort of by training and the actuarial line of thought very much leads you to a laser focused on point kind of targets and point return numbers and sort of working back from that. Whereas it is helpful to have a return target, but I think you can go overboard and then working that back and laser like focusing on the, on the point number. We have a target. We know there's probably a range of likely outcomes. I think it would be nice if that target was not quite in the middle of the range, but kind of a little bit below the middle. So in other words, the weight of probability is a little bit above the target, as in it's more likely we beat it than we don't kind of thing. But I think you have to hold the target sort of loosely in that sense and in, in um, not getting too tempted to work back from it and try and pin yourself down to something that's going to do exactly CPI plus two and a half. Because mm-hmm. the fact is, yeah, there's a there's a big range there that's way sort of bigger than that. So how can we kind of get that range in in, in, in kind of roughly the right place? I mean, I think it links to another sort of thing I was going to mention about beliefs in that there's, there's a real temptation, I think, in, in investing to try and spend a lot of time reducing the uncertainty that you're experiencing, right? That, that range of outcomes and uncertainty is just, is just scary and something that we don't tend to like. And a lot, yeah, a lot of time and effort is, is made into trying to pin that down and manage that risk. But I don't think you necessarily should, right? Mm-hmm. Returns are generally made in a world of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the investment returns are earned before the future is clear. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a really nice quote on a podcast. People often say, hope is not a strategy, right? It sounds very sensible. But actually, when it comes to investing, if you think about it, <coughs> hope is kind of the only strategy because all those returns are earned before um, the, the outcome is known yeah. for sure. If you, if you want to take hope out of the equation, you're probably not going to earn the return. So you have to somehow be comfortable living in that, that world where you've just naturally got a range of outcomes there anyway. And it doesn't lend itself that well to the kind of actuarial yeah. um, kind of risk management um, approach. And another, another actual issue, I think in the UK, we, we do sometimes get a bit too influenced by the defined benefit mindset where 
because the challenge there is slightly different in that you do have fixed cash flows, th th there is a temptation, and obviously folks have really focused on managing really laser-like against those cash flows. Uh, and you, you can end up getting quite a risk-averse kind of mindset that kind of gets built in. And I think that there's a risk that gets mapped across too easily to the kind of DC defined contribution world as well, where it's just not so relevant. And we just have to accept there's going to be a lot of uncertainty and risk there and just sort of have to live with that and shouldn't focus our minds on trying to control that or manage it too much, I don't think. Actually, segues really well into a topic that's pretty close to my heart, which is communication and how we communicate with yeah. internal stakeholders, <clears throat> external stakeholders. And we touched on this a little bit earlier when you were talking about your you know, your quarterly report, what's on the front yeah, page. Exactly, what, yeah, exactly. What does yeah. that mean to you? Yeah, how do you, how do you think about that? What do you think's yeah, best practice there? And particularly in the context of what we've just been talking about, which is we know that there is a range of outcomes, but often people struggle getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. But that's essentially what we're trying to what we're trying to do in our communication. So yeah, yeah. just a little bit of your thoughts around those topics would be great. Oh yeah, I mean I could talk for hours. I actually <laughs> love this as a topic. I mean I, I think that for, for starters that is half the role. You can even say that is the role really for, yeah. that my role is 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 managing that communication bit as much as anything else. Um, it's something I've thought about qu quite a lot. And, and yeah, it, it is exactly down to how you can hold a bit of that uncertainty, but still create some kind of accountability and some kind of sense that things are being um, managed in a in a sort of accountable way. Um, so yeah, for example, it's small things like I have started looking at our performance reports and saying, I want to show the long term returns on one side, work to the shorter term on the other side. I've been trying to focus on picking out a particular time frame and focusing on that. Because you know, you've seen what it's like, especially for us. We have various options and various funds. We have three different things you could compare them to over probably five different time periods. So you know, if you're not careful, you have literally an entire page of numbers. And someone reading that is none the wiser as to what they should actually extract from it, right? Because obviously any period of time, some of it's probably doing well, some of it's probably doing badly. Yeah. So I've been trying to say, right, let's pick a period of time. And it, it's tricky, but I, I think... The, you don't want to focus too short term. Obviously, I don't want to be in the business of three months or even year returns. But equally, I think it, some people sometimes cop out and kind of go play the long term card as if, oh, you know, none of it matters because it's only long term anyway. I don't think we, that we can do that either. So I've been trying to say, well, I want to try and focus in on a, like a rolling five year. Can we sort of agree that that is long term enough that we think it has value, but not so short that it's going to incorporate too much noise? So can we try and focus our minds rather than all these time periods? We just look at the rolling five-year. Um, and then you've got to be clear what you're measuring against. And for us, that's that. there, there are three really relevant um, things to measure against. One is the competitors, which I don't think you can ever ignore in a competitive market because people can switch. They've got other choices. We have to be con co cognizant of that. Um, we've got a target, like I said, inflation plus two and a half. That we should be should be beating that. And thirdly, we have a reference portfolio, which uh, again, coming back to my, my favorite thing, sort of market cap type thing. I, I quite like having that as a as a reference point that we can deviate away from. And it's complicated because the drivers against those three different ones will be quite different over different periods of time. But I think you kind of have to arrive at some prioritization order and it might be slightly different for different stakeholders. Some some of my stakeholders be more focused on competition, others more focused on sort of reference portfolio. And so that's a little bit of a horses for courses one. You've got to try and get the time frame right. And you've got to try and narrow the number of things you're you're looking at, right? Number narrow the number of line items down, right? So you don't want to sort of open up the whole portfolio and be looking at kind of your European equities, your Australian equities, and all doesn't add anything. It's mm -hmm. kind of you want to start from quite a high level and then have an ability to drill down and kind of really look at the key kind of drivers. So I, I think having some framework for attributing 
your differences to those reference points is is, is sort of quite quite important as well. Um, but I, I also wouldn't underestimate the kind of again those little things around how you sort of um, trigger people or how you kind of prime them for what you're going to show. If you prime them with a bit of blurb about what the Fed did last month, it's just primed to think about the short term yeah. and, that, and that mattered and that was everything. Mm -hmm. If you prime them with some long-term statement of what you're trying to achieve and the fact that, yes, we know there's going to be a lot of variability, I think people will just, it will just sit in a different way. So, yeah, I think those things are very underestimated. I'm at an early stage of trying mm -hmm. to develop those communication channels and get people sort of on board with kind of my philosophy of sort of looking at it. I mean, sorry, just to carry on, there's, there's just so many other dimensions to it as well. It's often, people often talk about, oh, let's, we should look at risk-adjusted returns, mm. right? And I, I don't love that. I think it can be a bit of a cop-out sometimes talking about risk-adjusted returns. It's kind of, you know, your returns were bad, so therefore you you can get away with it by saying, oh yeah, but we took less risk, so risk-adjusted, you know? But, <laughs> you know, people care about returns, full stop, I think, real returns. So, you, you know, you, you've got to get alignment with your stakeholders about those things and then with your team as well and get in the swing of communicating things in that same way and, and then just trying to make some progress on those on, on those sort of key key points um yeah you, you, you obviously you're going to have times when the performance is, is is bad and on whatever metric you choose and you've just got to resist the temptation to like play bait and switch with the metrics and yeah. suddenly go oh ha 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 in in you know in absolute terms or whatever it was good sort of thing even if the relative was bad right so yeah that's i think an ongoing challenge to do that right a follow-up question on that some other colleagues that we've had on this new podcast series have told us that the the main advantage of a pension fund or an endowment or a healthcare foundation is time. Mm. You have a very long time horizon. And they try to communicate to their managers, their fund managers, their, the, the people that they are selecting to, to run different strategies to avoid the, um, their their willingness to go to the benchmark because with yeah. the benefit of time, you can actually take some active risk to the point that you were making before. Yeah. How do you think that communication with the fund manager can be improved over time so that that person understands that they can need to deep, uh, avoid going to the benchmark? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I, I think, honestly, I think that point can get overstated a bit, honestly, because, you know, you know, I, career risk is a thing. We, yeah, we're not exactly. all here for an infinite period of time. I, and I think sizing is what can really undo that. So mm. the, you have to size those positions right as the asset owner mm. to, to sort of get the manager to be able to basically survive for long enough, right? Because I, I, might, I might say to you as a concentrated active manager, here you go, why don't you manage 50% of the portfolio? And don't worry, we've got, we've got no time horizons. We don't care about what happens over five years. We all know that if that, if that underperforms over five years, that's going to be really tough to hold. Whereas if I've sized it right and said, actually, well, the more sensible thing was for that to be 5%, not 50. And we knew up front that was going to be variable and we had other things alongside it that were going to be countervailing to it. Then that's a more sensible setup for that long-termism to come into play, right? So it's all very well saying you've got a long time horizon. You still have to do the work to actually be able to sort of unlock the benefits mm -hmm. of it, I think, right? And I think sizing is frequently a key one that it's easy to get wrong, as in you oversize things more than you should, and then you end up in a difficult spot when it underperforms because you're like, well, I don't want to get rid of it. It feels a bit weak to halve it. I kind of don't want to double in now because I'm already all the way in. Um, so, yeah, I, I think sizing is kind of an important point of getting that right. And, and, yeah, I guess just doing the prep work to kind of prime people for what that variability might 
kind of look like. Um, and I think I might mention this before as well, but I, I'm, I'm always a fan of, of managers trying to manage the expectations. And especially when you've got a long track record to be able to say, well, look, on average, we go through periods of underperformance that are three years long, that are 20% mm -hmm. below the benchmark kind of mm -hmm. thing. And how nice, and managers don't tend to say that when they're outperforming, but it would be, I think it'd be very refreshing if managers were saying, hey, great news, we outperformed. By the way, you should expect that on average, we're mm -hmm. going to go through three years underperformance. We're going to be behind the benchmark by 20% for half the time kind of mm -hmm. thing. If you're saying it every time, then people will kind of get ready for it, I think, yeah. a little bit. And then the, the the job of the asset owner is to kind of make sure that those sizings are right and to make sure you've got kind of a good portfolio all around so that when you add it all up, it doesn't, there's no one thing that totally kind of, kind of dominates it. I think that's one sort of lesson actually from some of the factor performance we've seen over the last kind of three, four years is you had these products that were kind of multi-factor and were kind of seemed great because you had these diff differentiated sources of return. But when it came to it, they actually got very dominated by by value. And yeah, value can be great. It's good, nothing against value, but it, it was just one thing dominated it too much. It had a really tough time, mm. but managed to drag down the hole as well, mm. which you know, I just think was a lesson in sizing that particular part of it right in order to actually kind of be able to get to that 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 kind of long-term piece because it is just going to be hard to defend something that's constantly underwater for kind of three, four, five years if you're kind of looking at it that way. Yeah. But again, come back to that point about how deeply you look at it. If if you've got one manager that's a small part that's underperforming, that you could argue there's no need to expose that to all the stakeholders. If the total is doing well, then there's no need to drill in because um, you know, someone like Joe Wiggins would say, if you constantly drill in, something will always be underperforming. You'll yeah. always be tempted to shuffle that out and put something else in. Whereas if you can, again, to unlock that long-term mindset, if you can kind of be strong enough to say, no, no, just looking at the total, we know there's stuff in there that doesn't look great, but that's the whole point of this whole thing and kind of just focus people on that total thing. Um, I, th I think that is important and which actually connects to another one of my sort of core beliefs as an asset owner. You, as an asset owner, you have to kind of, own your convictions, I think. I'm quite adamant about that. You, you've got to take that responsibility on yourself and own the conviction and all the stuff you're doing. If you're constantly exposing all those underlying line items to your stakeholders and stuff every time, it's almost like you're trying to sort of push that choice onto them a little bit. Whereas I kind of think, you know, me as the CIO, us as the asset um, allocation team, we have to own all those bits and really stand by them rather than just kind of exposing them all and letting a stakeholder just decide they want to shuffle that bit out because it's kind of not done very well, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think there is a real responsibility on the asset owner to set things up the right way to actually unlock the power of that long-term um, thing because it is said a lot. I think can be overstated and it's does it's not just a given that it that just materializes as a as a benefit. Then we are coming to an end to our session but before I ask you our final question I have to ask you if you're going to go back into podcasting. <laughs> it's look it's it's one thing I've I've missed a little bit we were just saying before we went on air weren't we I you know I really enjoyed the time I spent working on, on the podcast at LCP, uh, Investment Uncut, which is still going. People can check it out. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Got a lot out of it. Was really grateful for the opportunity to, to do that um, and, and what, what I built sort of with, with, with Mary, my co-host there. Uh, so that was great. I, I do miss that a lot. Um, it's, it's not currently part of my sort of role to do it, to be a podcast host all the time, but you never know. Maybe I can be, be a guest on a few things and kind of get my podcast hit that way. I still listen to a lot of podcasts, by the way. I'm still a bit of an avid podcast listener. Well, we have to thank you because thanks to you, we had on this podcast one of our favorite guests, Stacey Havener. Ah, yes, you did. Yeah, of course. And yeah. she was a host and a guest yeah. and we had a great time with her. Dan, 
on the, the last time that you came to the Value Perspective podcast, you gave us a couple of book recommendations. Yeah. One of those was uh, David Grohl's autobiography, which was absolutely fantastic. And I and remember saying, that, yeah. I did. And yeah. I remember I remember saying that uh, that had been the sort of book recommendation that we were not expecting yeah. to hear. So uh, this time around, we are hoping to get some <laughs> new ideas from you. Yeah, I'm not sure I can do as well as that. That was that was exceptional. And um, yeah, I should say we were again we were talking talking before we went on air. I've got, I've, you know, I've got two really young kids, as you know, one and one and three years old. Same same, same as you, Andrew, as you were saying. And so my my reading is in a bit of a bear market, should we say, over the last <laughs> little while. It's a bit tough. It's been lo lovely period of time with, with, with my two little boys, but I don't get to read as much as I, as, as I have. But having said that, I have got a couple of recommendations for you. So I think one of them is really appropriate for this time of year. And one of them is probably one to sort of stick in the bottom drawer for a particular time. And I'll explain why. So the one that's appropriate for this time of year is a book I read about a year ago called 4,000 Weeks. It's a, I would describe it as a sort of book on life philosophy. And the basic gist of it is the guy who wrote it describes himself as a sort of reformed productivity guru. So he was writing books, basically saying how you can get everything done in eight hours, productivity hacks here, you know, hack your day before lunchtime, how to do this, that and the other. And this book is a complete kind of reversal of that, where he kind of says, actually, that was all rubbish. What you actually need to do <laughs> is focusing on the fact that you will never get everything done. You can never answer all the emails or all the messages or do everything. But that's a good thing. And you should embrace it. And you, know, you can have a much more productive and a great life, even embracing that and actually and turn it into a great thing. So that, that is a really good book to read, I think, at this time of year, because it's sort of New Year's resolution mm -hmm. time. I'd, I'd second that as well. I think my, my sister messaged me and said, you have one good book recommendation last year, and it was that one. Was it? Yeah, you got really it as well. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And for those that like audio books, really well read as well, so... Right. Okay. I, I, actually, I don't do audiobooks much. I do podcasts, not audiobooks. I, but I read that. That that is really good. And it's not that long. You can you can get through that pretty quick, even if you've yeah. got a couple of very demanding little um little, little boys running around. The other one, I read it when I had a bit of time off between jobs, which I was very fortunate to have over the summer. And I, it's the kind of book you want to read when you're in that mindset because it's, it, I don't say it's heavy. It's quite intense, quite challenging. And you want to read it slowly and enjoy it, I think, over a long period of time. It's called Saving Time, Imagining a Life Beyond the Clock by, by Jennifer O'Dell. And it's quite a challenging thesis. She, she, basically, she's saying that clock time is a sort of inherently extractive concept that was developed so we could divvy up time and sell it as labor, basically. Mm. And, it, and it is inherently kind of chafing against human nature to be sort of on the clock. And so you should try and get away from it however you can. She comes up with this concept of deep time. Which, which I really like is this idea of, you know, I think if you've ever been surfing, you, that's, you know what deep time is because you sat there, you don't know what time it is. Mm. If you go on a long hike, for example, that's another example. Often it's connected to being in nature actually because you're sort of interacting with a different time scale when you're in nature to the normal clock time. And I enjoyed a lot of deep time over the summer. We were down by the River Charente in France, eating croissants and stuff with, with the boys. So that, that was definitely my kind of, my deep time. Um, but the, the book is amazing because she, she cites all these sources from kind of, various kind of in indigenous Aboriginal thinkers to kind of modern neoclassical econo econo economists and political thinkers and, and those sort of things. So it's a wonderful book to kind of muse over a little bit and put, put your own sort of take on. So maybe save that one for the summer, get stuck into 4,000 weeks. And um, even if you've got very little time for reading, I think people will get something out of that, hopefully. I have to say that uh, as a father of a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, the the amount of time that you allocate to reading doesn't really recover that much, uh, yeah, okay, but yeah. you only have hope. <laughs> Dan Mikulski, long term view. Long term view. Thank you very much for coming back to the Value Perspective podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you.